This is a Future Cannabis Project podcast. Welcome to Hota Herbs Grow and Tell. Yeah, it's, um, I, I think I've seen, like, there is, um, so there is a, there is a product on the market, uh, which is basically, I think it's called CO2 breathe bags that are basically a fungi that you hang in your tent that release, supposedly release CO2, um, it's basically a fungi bag. But, um, my understanding is that, you know, you want to try to keep your fungus, uh, that you're growing in a, um, in a, in a cleaner environment. Um, not necessarily in a grow tent, uh, where you might have a lot of other dirt and things blowing around, um, Craig, but it, you know, it, you... it depends on the species. So like, and the reality too, is when you're getting like, when you're getting a mushroom block, it's like, and this is one of the big things in general, like people that produce, um, like the fungus itself is a block, right? Like the block is pretty much, um, been inoculated. This it's an artificial log, basically it's been inoculated with a defined culture and it fully is grown through the biomass and it's all white. It's a confluence, the fancy word, basically it's grown through all the, the substrate and substrate is like the food source, um, for the fungus. Um, and so the idea is that like really they breathe in oxygen and breathe the carbon dioxide and, a lot of these bags you'll hang and they'll probably have a filter patch. So it'll passively be breathing in uh, the carbon dioxide and breathing out the, uh, the oxygen in general. But the reality in general, you just need to cut the bag because what happens is when you cut the bag, um, you're allowing fresh air exchange into this block, which has kind of been reduced oxygen for so long. And then also too, when you're uh, based upon the species of fungus, they have certain uh, temperatures which are conducive for making these things called primordia. Like primordia, basically like baby mushrooms. It's the uh, it's the moment where the fungus is kind of changing its gene expression to make these little uh, tiny little fruiting bodies, of which it'll make lots of them. But basically, will select which ones to inflate into a full size mushroom. It'll pretty much hedge its bets to decide which one has the best microclimate on this incredibly. It's kind of nuts because, like, you know, the mushroom itself will have the same number of cells. That's when it's microscopic. It's just how much water and uh, nutrients are being pumped into it to basically uh, make all these specialized um, cellular structures that make on and make a fruiting body as well. So you don't really have to worry too much unless you're actually like straight up, like, inoculating your own bags and stuff or just doing your own culture work. But if you're just buying a bag from a spawn producer on the reputable um, – you know, when I say reputable, like don't go on Etsy, well, not to knock Etsy, right? You have to develop a relationship, but if you just Google like mushroom bag and find an Amazon or Etsy, um, you know, there's a couple of good, um, medium, small to medium sized companies or uh, mushroom growers that are around you. Uh, but if you get a block that's fully white and inoculated, you don't have to worry about contamination. And oftentimes, you know, like they'll still produce mushrooms anyway. Um, and even too, when you're actually, if you're doing some kind of stuff where you're doing like you know, living soil or compost. Um, I find actually when I'm composting, we'll have a, we'll have a, like a block graveyard artificial after we flush the mushrooms once or twice and you can get second and third flushes off these blocks, even if they're a little contaminated because the fungus will kind of keep chugging along and different species will be a bit more like recalcitrant contamination. They'll survive it. Um, but even when I, when I'm doing composting or doing a living soil system, 
um, I'll sometimes let these blocks outside get really gnarly and get all these different types of fungus growing on it. Because when I'm adding it into my compost pile, I'm inoculating my compost with all the different species of fungi. Um, and when you're when you're kind of doing soil, uh, it's really the, the the more the merrier in biodiversity. And often too, like most of the fungi that are kind of doing the magic are these soil fungi that don't really make mushrooms per se, but are basically making, doing a lot of this work to basically cycle a lot of the more recalcitrant uh, materials and nutrients in our soil. Wow. I'm fascinated by what you just t told us. Um, the thing you guys described about the growing intense, Sam, I, I did want to ask you one one item, Craig, I think it's mostly because of the humidity difference between the needs of cannabis and the needs of mushrooms, like cannabis plants, especially in flower, need a little bit less humidity. Mushrooms you want really, really high. But back to your point about what kind of mushrooms are beneficial and, and the fungi that's beneficial to the soil, are there specific uh, fungi or mushroom, um, I don't know how you, how you say it, but types of mushrooms that are really beneficial for soil more so than others uh, that you could share with us? Um, I'd say that the reality is that in a lot of our soils and, you know, I kind of got into mycology more so in the aspect of like environmental remediation, ecological restoration, but there's a lot of um, applications for when we're doing horticulture or agriculture and we're trying to grow plants and oftentimes when we're trying to grow cannabis uh, or even vegetables or anything, you know, we want like a one-to-one -one ratio of bacteria to fungi in our soil. So we watch, we want the more fungi, the better, right? When we say the more fungi, the better if we're getting a diverse number of species. Um, so I guess in the part one notion, you kind of mentioned about certain types of fungi. Um, so the, so in general, um, do you, uh, so give me, give me an example of the temperature and humidity of when you're having vegetative versus reproductive growth for your cannabis plants, I guess in general with your, your garden versus your flower room, right? Okay. Well, okay. That's a great uh, question. Thank you for asking that. So in the flowering room, I had it in my PTR before, we want really low humidity for us for in the West Coast. We try to keep it low because our environment outside has high humidity. So we like it below 50% for sure. In the vegetative room here that I just have uh, in my PTR, and I ask this because this isn't a tent, this is a large space. We only use half of this space. So I was able to, at, at times, because I keep it very sterile, I was able to have those little bins on the right-hand side that you see that's open. So in the vegetative room, a lot of times we really like humidity high, as high as 70% sometimes. So I think in those spaces, it may be uh, appropriate to have a little bin with mushrooms growing in it. And um, if you have the space, it couldn't really hurt. Uh, what do you think about that? And could you d tell our cannabis community about what the ideal humidity for mushrooms is in those little bins? Because it seems like nearly. Yeah, fun. definitely, definitely. Um, so it varies. Um, so temperature. Um, so the biggest two things in general, um, fungi will try to fruit um, regardless of humidity. Usually they want to shoot for upwards of 70 Um you know, the idea is you're basically trying to think about, I'd rather than give you a number per se, right? Because you can, you can go ahead and purchase Paul Stamets growing gourmet medicinal mushrooms and even find the PDF online where there's a whole index of different species, which give you like temperature, all the nerd shit. And you can even find it online, Google it, like on Shroomery, they have all these tables. But the thing to understand and take away is more to understand is that, um, you know, in the forest, right? Um, when it rains, 
Um, the reason why we see mushrooms popping up is because what's happening is that the water is soaking into the forest floor, right? It's soaking into the soil. And after the next few days following that rainfall, uh, that water is evaporating um, slowly and it's making its way like through the various horizons of the soil from like the, you know, the inorganic to the organic to the living and biomass. And you have this microclimate on the forest floor. And when you see mushroom, when you see fungi that produce mushrooms, um, you know, the cap and stem mushrooms that we understand, they actually have evolved um, to release spores, leveraging this kind of humidity and microclimate. Um, there's thing called a Bueller's drop, and it's a whole different talk unto itself. But the idea is they're really good on microclimates, right? You know, so the idea is that at the end of the day, when there's fresh oxygen exchange available, the temperature is right and the humidity is right. Um, they're going to try to fruit. One example of mushrooms that are pretty tenacious are oysters. There's all different types, um, you know, pinks, blues, yellows, you name it. Um, usually the blue oysters or pearl oysters are the most tenacious. They'll kind of grow in any kind of temperature, uh, cold to warm. Um, you know, you know, oftentimes the ones that will tend to grow in hotter temperature are the pink oysters. Um, but those ones in general, they're, they're pretty big on needing lots of oxygen. So they're actually really good because they'll actually, they'll be, if they don't get enough oxygen, uh, if there's too much CO2, they'll get really stemmy. So if you're looking in a vegetative room where these plants are, you know, basically they need carbon dioxide, right? There's a really good opportunity to have a symbiosis going in general. Um, a couple of my friends that I have known have messed around with, um, you know, growing them, growing mushrooms uh, with along with plants, but even growing algae along the side, right? You know, um, the reality too is we have organisms which are able to take uh, light and turn that into, um, you know, sugars and produce a wonderful byproduct of oxygen. Um, so there's a lot of ways you can do symbioses along with that as well. Uh, in that capacity too, uh, and I'm sure even some people that really kind of kind of got get gone down to like the living soils, um, or even some, some of the natural farming framework where they're having these beds with just a rich fungal ecology going on. They're getting mushrooms popping out. Uh, mind you, that's a whole different kind of type of cultivation than trying trying to do like indoor cultivation in certain ways where you know there are certain constraints and things that are logistically inclined um but the reality too is that there are some benefits to be gained from the fact you have an organism that is going to be consuming um you know basically your oxygen you know and much in the way like i'm sure there's situations if you know in growth factors of plants when there's too little uh carbon dioxide available right especially when you're kind of doing in kind of controlled or indoor uh cultivation so there are ways to kind of uh, integrate these kind of symbioses with different types of uh, both the plant kingdom and uh, fungal kingdom. But to kind of short answer on that, oysters, pretty tenacious. They're really recalcitrant, um, even with contamination on them in general. Um, you know, the one thing I would do is whenever you're introducing anything into a room where you're growing organisms, which um, is your livelihood, definitely take measures and precautions. Obviously, if you're ordering from a reputable spawn producer, um, they're going to be coming in sealed polypropylene bags. Um, you know, if you're kind of doing any kind of like, you know, 
biosafety or kind of biohazard control or kind of any kind of standard operating procedures to prevent contamination on your crop or a growing environment. You know, very much the same for someone who's doing the same from like a fungal standpoint. You know, at the end of the day, like we're trying to grow these organisms in a controlled environment, um, regardless of whatever the conditions are outside, right? You know, and I'm sure different, even with different strains and different phenotypes, they like different varieties of temperatures and humidity. And that's very much the same with fungi as well. So, but yeah, the idea is too is if you're ordering, uh, mushroom biomass or spawn from a reputable purveyor, um, they're going to be pretty sterile. It's something you could spray down with, um, you know, like uh, star sand, which is phosphoric acid with bleach, with rubbing alcohol or even hydrogen peroxide on the outside. And you wouldn't have to worry about damaging the fungus. Uh, and that'd be a good way to potentially, uh, you know, make sure there'd be no cross-contamination general. But also you're getting some of the benefits of the mutual exchange between uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen and vice versa between the, between the plant. So it sounds like it would be good to, even if you're going to do that um, and grow those mushrooms in the same space with your other plants, that you need to make sure to continue to at least keep them isolated in a place where the plant isn't going to be rubbing up on your plastic bin or hitting your mushrooms and things like that. Um, is there, you know, would, would you need to keep them out of that main light? Because, I mean, we're pumping some serious light into there. Mushrooms aren't necessarily growing in the brightest light uh, situation. Um, no, it's not really. Mostly when the fungus is growing, when the mycelium itself is growing through the biomass, that's when you want reduced light. Actually, um, having a bit of light is perfectly fine for them when they're producing fungi. Um, the actual block itself will actually make like a, a pellicle on the inside. If you were to cut open the bag um, and break open the block, you would find this like thick kind of skin that it will contain on itself to basically retain moisture and also protect the the majority of its biomass from any uh, potentially, uh, you know, light exposure. But, you know, when it comes to the fruiting body, a number of species actually will uh, prefer to have certain wavelengths of light, um, especially in general. And a reason why a number of fungi produce different pigments in their mushrooms is a response to basically protect themselves from uh, a variety of kind of UV radiation, um, you know, or just general kind of light, um, potentially things that could damage their cells or things like that. But they're, they're pretty hardy. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that, with different gases, right? Gases have different weights. Uh, carbon dioxide is obviously a much heavier gas um, than oxygen, right? We understand that basically if you have a container, you know, the carbon dioxide is going to pool on the bottom unless you have something to let, uh, let the carbon dioxide flow out. Even having those blocks potentially on your floor might be a good way because, you know, basically the carbon dioxide is going to be pooling on your floor from the plants and then the oxygen is going to be basically rising up. Um, so there might be some ways where the, ox the carbon dioxide uh, might be – well, you could basically place the mushrooms up high where they're pretty much absorbing um, – you, you can place the mushrooms up higher where they're absorbing the oxygen that's being given off from the plants, which is rising. And then the mushrooms are basically absorbing the oxygen and then dropping down the CO2 on the plants. So this is something to take in mind is that, you know, yep. like basically visualizing the density of gases and how they're, they're sorting out in your room, especially in an area that's not currently being circulated, but may have a kind of like little air pockets. They'll kind of stay stagnant. Potentially. Yeah. And, One thing, and higher up, it's going to have more humidity. Go ahead, Matt. One thing I wanted to just like add on to this because I've been 
if people follow my stories, I have a very fungally dominant soil. Like I'm always posting like pictures of hyphies and fruiting bodies coming through. I, and I, and I, you know, like intend that I cultivate that on purpose in many different ways. And I can always talk about that. But one thing I always say is if anybody's getting excited about hearing all this and like they want to go out and put, um, bags into their grow tent um to uh, get a little bit more co2 from from my experience i get the same if not um more from a consistent heavy fungally dominant like mulch layer that's tearing through stuff um than i do from the bags and that's just from like actually like taking readings and uh, I have a friend also that has the same thing. The the CO two bags, yes, they do help if you're not, but it, like if you're in living soil and you have pretty healthy um, soil, I don't think it's going to be that. M- from my experience, it's not that much more beneficial, um, even from the readings I've taken to have uh, like bags in there. And, but, and to and, the to the point about the bins, you definitely want to spit like you. I don't think there's a tent that could house bins and cannabis. I think it's about a, a room, unless you only have like one little, literally one cannabis plant. You would want a, you know, a meter, three to six feet of space between uh, your nearest cannabis plant and a bin that you would buy off the internet for for uh, mushrooms. Yeah, I'm thinking rack, man, like a shelf. Yes, exactly. What people do, you know, put a little uh, LED light on on the rack. Uh, They they what they do is they put a a rack. They put little lights, um, T5 fluorescent lights, on the bottoms of the shelves, and they keep the bins on them. And they'll have like four bins. And to the point about light, Jason, they actually have a little uh, um, blanket that goes over top of it, so that the light that the plants are getting, because they do need light, but they need this spectrum that we would often use in early veg much more so than the spectrum we would use in flower uh thanks for letting me yeah i would definitely put them in a veg environment anyway they want the humidity that your veg environment's going to have more humidity um again i think keeping them up higher would help you as opposed to lower because your humidity is also higher uh that's another reason why you want to to me have exhaust fans at the top of your tent as opposed to the bottom of your tent because you're trying to suck humidity out of the tent a lot of the time and um, that's part of the thing that you're combating when you're in a very small space especially if you have a lot of uh, soil. So if you're using a 4x4 fabric bed inside a 4x4 or 5x5 tent, uh, your humidity is going to be much higher than you're used to experiencing if you're switching from pots to that. And so, um, yeah, your humidity levels at the top of the tent or the top of your room even are going to be higher than they are on the bottom. So that's uh, that's what I was thinking was you put some, you know, you could put a shelf into your existing veg tent. Uh, I know I could fit a shelf into my veg tent and then maybe put a mushroom box or two on the top of that shelf um, and then put some of the younger plants on some of the lower uh 
stock shelves of the rack where they would still get plenty of light and not necessarily be uh, shaded by those mushroom bins up at the top. So very cool. Very cool. Definitely was not, uh, was not, um, what I was thinking we were going to spin into tonight, but it's a fantastic conversation and definitely something that was uh, has been on my mind for a while because I come from the food business and I love to cook and I love to eat mushrooms. And so, um, you know, with my move to this new house, I've been going back and forth between, you know, the whole food forest concept and doing some things outside. I definitely have a really uh, a good amount of wooded areas that, uh, and I've, I've been posting a whole bunch of pictures of all the different mushrooms I have uh, growing naturally in my yard right now. So um, definitely an, a good environment, I think, for uh, cultivating some outdoor mushrooms as well. So definitely something I'm interested in. And uh, we, we are talking about growing and telling. There's no, there's nothing in here that says growing cannabis only. We're talking about growing and telling. We could spend the whole night talking about uh, herbs because I love to grow herbs as well, and um, that's that's prim- primarily what I did for years when I wasn't growing cannabis. <laughs> and and we could talk about mushrooms all night and still be discussing the soil food web and be very much. Uh, you know, helping our cannabis plants by doing so, because um, back to the topic you kind of selected for us, I actually didn't even realize you're deviating. I thought it was part of your plan because having the mycelial web is such an important part of um, the ability of enzymes to succeed, which brings me back to my point of why I'm here. How much money could be saved by a CO2 production from mushrooms, helping CO2 um uh, needs for the cannabis plant, and B, how much could the existence of a mycelial web and um, uh, the uh, natural food web to uh, and, and living soils, how much that helps the efficiency of any garden? Yeah, no, absolutely, and I, I definitely uh, love the point about uh, that you brought up, Matt, um, because of all that activity that's happening in those living soil, especially in a bed, uh, you're probably releasing all sorts of fantastic uh, CO2 to the air with what's the fungal processes that are going on in that bed. So very cool stuff. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, so, um, yeah, we go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I'm just going to say, you know, like I've been uh, looking for fungal life anywhere that I can find it and then building as, you know, fungal dominant compost as possible over time. It's been like my kind of obsession. And then uh, I've also like fun little thing is like any contaminated blocks that I have, I always turn into my compost. So there's like, there in theory is like a millions amounts of like, well not millions, but tons of fun, like different styles of, uh, mycelium and that you can add all the time and it it totally helps there was a loss there there was an individual talking about having a tent for mushrooms which had a high humidity and way too much co2 in it and pumping that air into a tent for flowering now see that's that's something i don't know that's kind of ingenious successful but that's some genius level stuff and it's a uh, testament to to the balance that all these plants provide for each other 
I feel like you're still talking at least a 10 by 10 room though. Like I've seen some pretty big um, mushroom operations and cannabis grows in the same kind of house, if you will. And I mean, not a notable difference, I think, but I don't know. What Hoda described, Mr. Uh, Jason, our lead moderator today, and Jason, thanks again for having the room. These rooms are, are amazing. What you described about the veg plant, veg tent with the uh, bins on shelves, totally possible. And if anyone could do it, it's you. Thank you, Ali. All right. So uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. We actually are almost an hour into uh, the Grow and Tell. It's amazing how fast that time goes by. I figure, I feel like we just jumped on. Uh, but thank you all for joining Hota Herbs Grow and Tell. Uh, we are here uh, in partnership with the Future Cannabis Project, and uh, we're hosting this weekly space at 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern on Thursdays and 6 p.m. Uh, on the West Coast of the United States, and uh, we are talking about growing and we are telling about what we're doing. Uh, so the Grow and Tells, for those that are not familiar with the concept, who may not have been able to join us last week, uh, Grow and Tells is a uh, meeting, a community gathering that I started in Worcester, Massachusetts a couple years ago after legalization, where uh, myself and a bunch of local growers would get together on a monthly basis, the third Thursday of every month, and we would all get together at a place called the Summit Lounge, which is an amazing consumption lounge in Worcester, Massachusetts. It was one of only three consumption lounges in the country uh, at the time. And uh, we would meet on a monthly basis and get together and sniff each other's jars and smoke each other's weed and talk about what we were doing and how we were growing and different techniques we were using. And I would bring in different sponsors and and different um, breeders and lighting companies and um, beneficial bacterial companies and different groups of people uh, to talk and share information and, and, and build a community and a place for growers to hang out and get together and learn from each other and share this amazing plant and, and share uh, ways to care for it and to uh, cultivate it better. And so that's where this came out of. And uh, we had uh, 16 months in a row where we were going and going strong. And unfortunately, we got sideswiped by COVID. Uh, the last Grow and Tell I had, actually, we did a uh, class on Korean natural farming, and we all made lactic acid bacteria together. So I actually brought a bunch of fermented rice water with me and milk and jars and uh, helped everybody make their own batch of uh, lactic acid bacteria and bring it home and so they could bring it home and let it separate and start using that amazing uh, input on their um, on their gardens um, and um, so 
you know, we unfortunately COVID came as I mentioned, and the Summit Lounge had to shut down for a while, and none of us really wanted to be together or even allowed to be together for that matter. Uh, so, you know, the grow and tell died off, and um, I uh, I did miss it, and uh, it is um, it is unfortunate that is is uh, has to be virtual still. Um, I have moved, so I'm actually not as close to the Summit Lounge as I used to be, and I do miss my friends at the Summit Lounge. It's a tremendous place in Worcester, Massachusetts that allowed us to really start building a strong community. So uh, definitely my shout out, a quick shout out to uh, the Summit Lounge and all my friends who were uh, uh, monthly attendees of the Grow and Tell. We had a good core of folks who showed up every month and I appreciate them and I appreciate the space. Um, And I appreciate Peter for uh, reaching out to me and encouraging me to get uh, going again and uh, start this uh, start this conversation going because as we know, we all need help. Uh, we all have questions. We all can make much better progress when we can talk about these things and learn from each other and share. And as a community, we've been very disenfranchised and had to hide and couldn't talk with each other, couldn't get together uh, for you know security reasons and legal reasons and all those other things that kept us separated. Um, so as a legal community, that can talk about this plan, we need to. Uh, we need to continue talking about it and sharing and, and sharing awesome information about cultivation. So I thank you all for joining us tonight. Uh, we will be in just a few moments starting a conversation around enzymes and uh, how important enzymes are for pretty much every living thing on the planet. Um, and so we'll get going and we'll start the simulcast on YouTube under the Future Cannabis project. Uh, But for those who may not already be following the Future Cannabis Project, please click on that green house at the top and uh, join the club. And uh, please also follow, uh, you know, click on each of the speakers and give them a follow as well. Uh, Tonight, I am joined by a good friend of mine and fellow KNF classmate, uh, Craig Trester, uh, who is a mycologist out of New York City and a tremendous plant scientist. Um, so I really appreciate you joining us tonight, Craig. Um, and again, thank you, Peter, for hosting uh, the, and, and bringing me into the Future Cannabis Project. How's it going? Uh, to clarify, uh, my background is in mycology, although I am learning very much, much about plants. My background is in microbiology and molecular biology, so definitely be kind of going in that capacity. Although through much of my work, definitely kind of understanding, you know, fungi, the soil, the compost, the plants, you know, at a certain point, you kind of realize it's one continuum of <clears throat> biological matter uh, interacting between um, the biotic, so either organisms or materials that organisms uh, take in and uh, put out, uh, so from substrates to products and even to uh, inorganic material that um, the microbiology is interacting with and making available for the macrobiology. So definitely happy to be here and to share some Are we all ready to go, Peter? I know you are eating dinner. 
um, and uh, actually on your anniversary I think, dinner. So I, I think do. he's streaming actually right now. I'm actually looking at Fant- the chat. So. Fantastic. All right. So we can jump right in. I wasn't sure what We've been we live for about 30 minutes. Perfect. Perfect. Awesome stuff. Well, happy anniversary, Peter. Um, And uh, we greatly appreciate your wife's patience with you and allowing you to to get things going for us tonight um, and continuing to have dinner for uh, with you on your anniversary um, while this fun stuff is going on. So we thank you and wish you and your wife a happy, happy anniversary. Um, so let's get it kicked off. So enzymes, understanding enzymes, enzymes. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I did last week. I did a quick, uh, search on enzymes. I personally know of enzymes, um, from, you know, from a couple different aspects. I mean, I know we have enzymes in our saliva that help break down things and, and are part of our digestive process. And we have other enzymes in our stomach that, uh, again, are helping break down those, uh, things so that we can digest them. Um, and I also introduce enzymes into my garden. Um, I like to use a product called SLF 100, uh, which is a, it's a nice set of enzymes. And there's also lots of naturally occurring enzymes that are in there breaking down the materials like dead roots, uh, wood, organic matter. Um, in some ways I've referred to enzymes almost as, uh, at least SLF 100 as kind of like liquid worms uh, because they're uh, similarly breaking down things in the substrate as they move around and do their thing. So I'm sure uh, Craig will come through with a bunch of corrections for what I just stated. Um, But in general, enzymes are extremely small yet powerful proteins made of complex chains of amino acids folded in shapes reminiscent of Pac-Man. And again, I'm reading from an article uh, on guard, in Garden Culture magazine. Uh, simply said, enzymes have the power to chop things into smaller parts. Uh, they are able to break down, modify, and even create things naturally occurring and necessary to all forms of life. In fact, without them, there would be no life, not as we know it anyways. Um, and uh, the digestive process is the most commonly known use of enzymes. Uh, various enzymes along our digestive tract convert what we eat into essential substances for our bodies, uh, starting with amylase uh, in the saliva, as I mentioned, which breaks down starches into sugars, um, and it goes into some other metabolic uh, things about how it works with the hum- with our bodies and things like that. Um, but, you know, no, there is no doubt that adding enzymes to our, when we talk to plant, about plants, that adding enzymes into our feeding schedule is beneficial to plants. It aids in the simple tasks like getting rid of dead roots, or very complex ones like helping plants accelerate its development by assisting in hormone biosynthesis. Um, So not only are they there breaking down things in our soil, they're also, um, to Ollie's point, uh, helping actually make some of those nutrients more productive. Um, So uh, with that little introduction into enzymes, I'm going to turn it over to Craig uh, because this is a topic near and dear to him and the reason why we're having, one of the primary reasons we're having this conversation tonight. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess the kind of speak broadly, uh, cause we could, it's very easy to kind of get into the, all the different, uh, individual functions and roles and enzyme can perform. Um, enzymes are in, in a word, just biological catalysts. Um, so, you know, and this is kind of the, the miraculous thing, this is kind of the miraculous power of life is that, you know, we understand that, you know, we as organisms are made of uh, very complex structures of biological material that's, you know, it's chaotic, but it's also organized as well. Um, so basically, in general, if these chemical reactions were to, were to basically go ahead and be performed, you know, we can understand that, you know, this chemical process reaction, we can call it a metabolism, right? You know, it's the process by which that chemical reaction is performed, um, energy is utilized. In our example, you know, usually if we're, as animals, usually we're consuming um, some kind of biological substance and we're taking the bonds that are linked between those compounds that have energy in them and their metabolism, a fair amount of it is lost as heat. Um, you know, if we're plants, um, we're working on a, a metabolism of these complex biological uh, pathways. Uh, we're, we're able, basically plants are able to utilize the energy from the sun, um, the photons, and use the energy to pretty much um, reduce carbon dioxide into complex sugars in general. And so the reality and aspect kind of we can definitely fall down the rabbit hole pretty quick but the factor is um when we talk about life it's a process by which um over millions to billions of years developing complex networks within individual organisms and even across organisms and in integrating other organisms um to basically harness this energy from the sun uh, and utilize in this capacity so the whole thing about it, enzymes are basically biological catalysts. Um, they allow a biological, they allow chemical reactions to occur uh, with far less energy and much more quickly in general. So, you know, Jason talked about the nature of proteins, right? You know, proteins are pretty much the largely the structural components that exist uh, all throughout every domain of life. Um, however, when you come to enzymes, right, um, all enzymes are proteins, but not all proteins are enzymes per se. Um, so what is a protein? A protein is basically a chain of amino acids. Um, there are 20 of these amino acids. Um, I'll get into the structural components of how the amino acids has a carboxyl and uh, an amide group and polypeptide chains and peptide bonds. But imagine a string of different amino acids um, together. And then these amino acids are different qualities. Um, some of them are more positively charged. Some of them are more negatively charged. And then, you know, some of them actually are more hydrophobic, meaning they're, they're not, they don't, would not rather not interact with water. And some of them are more hydrophilic, they'd rather interact with water. So what happens is if you have this chain of amino acids that has, you know, been evolved, um, in function with the organism over millions to billions of years um, to become an enzyme, this chain of amino acids will fold in certain ways. Now, this amino acid, when we basically understand it, life is enveloped in water. Pretty much every single organism is roughly 70% water by mass volume. We're little sacks of seawater, uh, whether we're an organism that's you know terrestrial in any capacity as well. So, you know, these organ these enzymes, these proteins are constantly bathed in water and their structure is affected by basically whether certain parts of this chain are going to be more inside 
of this folding, this folding higher level uh, structure um, or outside. And so you get these kind of clefts and shapes and out, active sites. So, you know, Jason talked about uh, kind of like a Pac-Man structure, right? Like oftentimes you can kind of abstract an enzyme into being a Pac-Man structure because, you know, Pac-Man will kind of go along and eating little little power pellets or power pills. And, and very much in a way, an enzyme can act upon certain chemical compounds. Um, these compounds are called, uh, are called substrates. And then the enzyme will work on the uh, basically substrate using its individual shape and fold and to make basically products. Now, when we talk about simple organisms, right, like individual bacteria or even archaea, um, you know, they'll often be able to perform uh, very simple roles. Like, for example, E. coli uh, is an example of bacterium, but really it's, you know, it does, it's not, not really asking for too much. It really just looks for a source of sugar to drive for energy in that capacity. Um, it's kind of funny, like, when an E. coli is in its environment, um, if there's ample food in its environment, a source of sugar, uh, it'll just kind of consume it and pull it in through its body, through os osmotic pressure, uh, and a variety of other ways, which we won't get into as well. Um, and But if there's no food, it'll basically start to spin its flagella. So we understand very simple organisms have very simple roles in having enzymes inside of their bodies that go through this process of the metabolism. Um, now, once you get in, getting into higher uh, forms of life, uh, organisms that have these complex chains of metabolisms where there's multiple enzymes and even proteins that work with enzymes in com comparison and stabilize and do things and do maintenance on cells, you really kind of start getting into the kind of beautiful chaos that is, you know, higher forms of life. Um, kind of, if you were to look on the inside of a cell, it would be this kind of crazy, busy metropolis where all these things are kind of interacting and bumping into one another. Uh, and for the longest time, we thought it was a very simple kind of lock and key model, but there are these very complex chains of metabolism that work together. And even too, they sometimes don't even have to be perfect. We've learned recently that a lot of these pathways and interacting proteins that will promote these regulatory environments and different metabolism pathways and regulatory pathways will actually sometimes work interchangeably. Um, but that's kind of an easy way to get down the rabbit hole. But the simplest thing to take away is that with these enzymes, um, we can even get into ways about how this is critical for, you know, metabolism, right? You know, let's understand, uh, I guess, in a relation, in a kind of more, let's bring this more into kind of growing plants, right? You know, so why, why are, you know, trace elements so important for organisms, right? So, you know, for years and years, you know, you'd hear about when cultivating plants. So it's NPK, nitrogen, um, you know, phosphorus and potassium. That's all that really, uh, need to happen. However, you know, as the years go on, we find out the essential elements, they continue to grow and grow and grow and grow. And then we realize, okay, you know, there's a bit more complex on here. So, so why do we need these trace elements or minerals to be in place? It turns out that, you know, these, um, that these elements uh, and trace amounts, boron, molybdenum, manganese, actually sit into the the higher structures, the enzymes, the secondary or tertiary structures, for example, like primary structure and enzyme would just be a chain of amino acids. Uh, secondary structure would be that chain folded onto itself. Uh, tertiary would be a higher dimension than even quandary. You'd have different subunits of 
these enzymes, these different motifs repeating to make these macro, larger macro structures that can form more complex uh, chemistry, more complex, um, you know, uh, catalytic function um, in general. So what's interesting is you get these cofactors. These cofactors are basically individual molecules or physical elements stabilized by different uh, chemical compounds uh, in these higher kind of tertiary quadrary structures that are essential. They'll basically stabilize a chemical reaction. Um, so this is why when we get to kind of get into plant health or even human health, if we're eating foods that are deficient in these trace elements, or if our plants are growing in soils that are deficient in these trace elements or don't have the proper microbiology in the soil to make these trace elements available, um, they're only functioning on a func they're only functioning in a fraction of the capability, right? There'll be some amount of these uh, trace elements available as cofactors for these higher level enzymes form these important functions for protein synthesis, um, for hormone synthesis, which may play in even antioxidants or, um, you know, different kind of uh, pigments and even even kind of higher chemical plant profiles like like terpenes or other compounds that protect the plant from herbivory or even pests pest or pathogens. Um, so it's kind of crazy because the reality is when we talk about enzymes, it's not just about breaking up um, organic matter, um, you know, in, in your growing bed, which is a great way to kind of introduce people into it. But you're performing these higher end functions, which are essential for kind of uh, homeostasis of the plant, even down to kind of hormone metabolism, even kind of in uh, oxidative stress metabolism. One of the most interesting things that basically happen into higher organisms is that um, you know, oxygen is essential for life. However, oxygen can be a source of stress. Um, we have these enzymes called superoxide dismutase, SOD. And what they do is they basically will scavenge the free radicals that kind of will go around our cells and reduce them to a point where they basically will, you know, statistically shred a lot less of our, um, you know, genetic information or biochemistry, which we can repair. But, you know, the idea is if you're uh, missing essential elements, which might be cofactors uh, in these enzymes, the less optimal the functioning is, or there are fewer of them, uh, fewer of these enzymes functioning at their, their peak optimum efficiency. Uh, but that's kind of, I think, a general, maybe <laughs> scratching the membrane of enzymes and kind of going into it that um, when we talk about enzymes, they're not just about chopping things up, but they're basically yeah. the engines of life. Yeah, um, it's it's that that there you know that being catalysts, right? Um, you know, there's uh, what I was reading about is that you know they have they accelerate reactions, right? There um, there was one they were saying there's something that could take millions of years to break down that the enzyme can actually do in in days, um, and um, yeah, they, they, it lowers the activation energy. So the idea is the fancy word is that. You know, for a reaction to occur, like over time, there will be statistically a chance of that occurring, you know, that the right molecules being at the right place, the right temperature, blah, blah, blah. But the enzyme will pretty much lower that energy that needs to get over the hump, right? So, you know, you probably opened up a textbook where they have like, you know, an example of enzymes and chemical reactions and that, you know, the enzyme will lower that, that basically that hump. Um, for that chemical reaction to occur, right? And that's like, it's a very simple one. Obviously, when you're getting into kind of those, um, you know, when you're getting into the thermodynamics, um, referring to thermodynamics is like amount of energy that goes through that process because in these chemical reactions, like there is a bit of energy that's lost as heat, but that's kind of just a part of the, you know, the nature of it. Because the reality is that, 
um, you know, in the world, everything made up of molecules, they're kind of vibrating at different states, right? The lower the temperature, the lower vibration, and also to the vibration of the bonds will affect how they fit into different um, aspects. For example, certain enzymes are only active at certain temperatures, right? You know, for example, um, you know, we think about uh, bacteria and geothermal vents, um, you know, there are, there basically are organisms that are able to survive at hundreds upon hundreds of degrees and their biochemistry, their enzymes are, have evolved to basically function where, um, their proteins or enzymes don't denature in these super high temperatures. Um, but that's just an example into it that, you know, you can lower the reaction uh, energy of the reaction that's happening, but also coordinate it as well. So it's kind of an imagining not so much a lock and key, but Legos that are able to kind of build on one another and also be modular and adaptable based upon the, the, the pressure from the environment uh, that is, you know, forcing this uh, organism to adapt. So yeah, enzymes. <laughs> I'm wanting to add into this, I have a bunch of notes, but I'm like mid-moving one of my tents and I'm loving all of this talk because there's so much good knowledge here and I really want to get into this. I just, I'll be in it in a few. Oh yeah, no worries, no worries. So I, I actually thought my mic was off and I'm sitting here talking. Um, but so, so one of the things that I read about uh, also was uh, that I think is important for us as growers to understand is that uh, enzymes are very susceptible to pH change and they're very sensitive to the pH of the substrate or whatever environment they're in. Um, some prefer, you know, acidic environments, some like neutral, some like alkaline. And so depending on the type of enzyme I would imagine you're trying to promote, you probably want to focus on getting the well, right it's, level. It's, it's the microbes, really. That's the reality of it. Um, the, the sources of the enzymes aren't just out there in the environment. It's the factor is that, you know, on every surface on this planet, um, living or non-living, there are microbes that are there. There are bacteria, there are fungi, there are archaea, there are yeasts um, that are performing this metabolism. And, you know, single-set organisms, you know, based upon whatever's around, you know, what's available. And this is something too, that I think about a lot as in composting as well. You know, if I'm, you know, if I'm taking in a bunch of green material, right, you know, that's going to be mostly bacterial foods. Now the different types of greens that will affect my biological diversity, right? If someone drops off a ton of citrus, I have to parse that out in multiple piles because I might grow up some pseudomonas. Pseudomonas is a type of bacteria that can be pathogenic to humans, but also has a potentially an enormous amount of remediative capacity, dealing with a lot of uh, volatile organic compounds, petroleum compounds, and things that really make people sick. Um, you know, if I get a lot of um, some meat or dairy, right, there may be some things I want to do to process that. I'll get different types of organisms showing up. I, I better make sure that compost goes thermophilic, where, you know, I potentially want to reduce the diversity of the potential potentially pathogenic organisms that might affect, um, you know, 
people around me, other animals as well. So that's the idea as well is what we're doing is there's all different types of enzymes for different applications and even some stuff that's going forward, right? Um, what we're putting into our compost, what we're using to build our soils ultimately is the source of these microbes. Um, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to kind of work with different situations. Like one thing I've been doing a lot recently, um, since I'm in New York city and we get a wide variety of food scraps pretty regularly. We collect around three to 700 pounds of food scraps a week from the community that I'll basically bin up and process a compost. But I'm not able to build a pile. Let's say it's Friday and I finish building a pile and I'm about to go home for the weekend and I got this full bin. I can't just leave that sitting out over the weekend, especially on a hot summer day, maybe in the fall, maybe in the wintertime. But I'll have, but all I'll do is I'll basically pickle it. Um, I will literally just make a JLF of it. Um, or pretty much I'll use rainwater that we harvest. It's already got some algae growing in there. Um, if I have to use tap water, I'll add in some finished compost or some humic acid to complex the chlorine. And what I'll do is I'll submerge all of the um, organic matter that I'm going to be pickling. And what I'm going to be doing is I understand that there's going to be yeasts um, that are on the food sources that are going to be basically in submerged. Uh, they're going to switch over from aerobic to anaerobic. They're going to ferment. They're going to ferment, and then along with that material, there's going to be a whole bunch of bacteria. Um, there's going to be lactobacillus. There's going to be acetobacter. There's going to be all different types that are going to be taking those those alcohols from the fermentation and turn them into um, vinegars, acetic acids, other kind of side product reactions that some of us, you know, we, you know, I could we could talk for hours about those things and get people in here. But the reality in general is I'm using that metabolism to pretty much do a pre-digest of all the bacterial foods, right? It's very so similar talking, to it. Yeah, it's very similar to a Bakashi approach. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, and what's really interesting in general is that if I'm working with those bacteria in the fermentation process, those bacteria are basically growing in that environment because they've evolved to that environment. Oftentimes they're dormant or they're shifting over a certain point from being anaerobic, facultative anaerobes, and they're basically expressing their genes to produce these enzymes, but they're also working in collection with other microbes. They're making like a metametabolism. Um, so the idea is we understand we have the yeast taking the sugars and fermenting them into alcohol. Uh, and then we have the lactobacillus or the acetobacter that are taking the alcohols and turning to vinegar. And then, you know, whatever side product reactions, but we're basically having a metametabolism. We're having enzymes at work by nature that there are things available for them to use in their metabolism. And then what I do is, Ben, it's a good thing for me. I'm making vinegar. I'm not getting any pests or rodents attracted to it. It's, I'd much rather rather my organic matter sour than go putrid. And also, too, I've pretty much allowed a lot of that, a lot of the, the, the bacterial foods to be broken down and freed up a lot of fungal foods. So I can go ahead and build my compost pile with greens that are pretty much ready to rock and roll if I have a good source of fungi in there as well. And, you know, when I've been doing this technique, I've been getting decomposer fungi showing up in my compost piles by my second or third turn. So there's a lot of cool ways we can do use enzymes just by understanding, by creating the conditions of the microbes that produce them and really can kind of get some desirable directions on shifting our ecology yeah, I've had a lot of luck with uh, using that Bakashi composting, especially in the winter up here, uh, because you can't compost it. You can't turn a compost pile in the middle of winter here in New England because it's frozen solid. Well, you uh, just, just, gotta, like my... just gotta add more <laughs> high nitrogens. You gotta get um, you got you gotta keep the fire going. 
you know? Um, and, and like even my wood chip pile was frozen solid, uh, last winter. So, um, it, it's, it's not, it's not necessarily the best conditions for, for outdoor composting. So I, I do Bakashi composting in the winter. Um, I have a couple of buckets that I keep in my basement and I do Bakashi composting in there. And then I take all of that material in the spring and throw it into the compost or directly into uh, furrows next to the rows where I'm going to be planting and, and uh, it's amazing how fast that material breaks down. Uh, like the eggshells are almost soft because they're they're almost they're like pickled uh, by the time you put them into the ground. So they they just disappear. It's not that slow burn you get with uh, regular eggshells and stuff like that. So yeah, I definitely appreciate that uh, approach, Craig, because that's uh, like I said, the Bakashi stuff is really interesting. Really, really, uh, how fast that stuff breaks down once you do introduce introduce it um, back into the soil. And this is another, I know last week I said something, but this is another fantastic reason to not um, worry so much about uh, amending uh, nitrogen dominant things because enzymes, um, if I remember right, it's... um, Proteasis, I can't remember, is the one that um, fixes N. And in uh, class in school, I remember, that was written down, it's the only reason why I'm like remembering it. It's, it's been like estimated that like 40% of the total um, nitrogen in the top layer of soil is um, from from enzymatic uh, like breakdown, which is pretty neat. So as long as you have that healthy, healthy soil, you're going to get some of those things, you know, fixed. And then there's others like, um, I think you kind of went over them, but like, uh, you know, they, they fix and break down a lot of, um, things like sulfur and phosphorus and mm-hmm. make them readily, yeah. you know, like yeah. available to the plant. Yeah, these these are the microbes that so that, that for example sources of nitrogen you know so we have you know if you have nitrogen in, in biological matter like the largest source is basically so these amino acids right these amino acids they have these amide groups they have nitrogen that are in them that's why we call them amino acids and even too this is like a plant available form um, you know if you're providing your plant with um, nitrates uh, fertilizer as well you know you'll get it's like Basically, the plant is going to be trying to control what it needs to be taken up in general. Um, you know, certain types of plants have symbiotic relationships with different types of bacteria. For example, the legumes like clover, you'll have uh, rhizobiums. You'll have basically the symbiosis between the plant um, and making these nodules where you'll have these uh, basically these uh these bacteria, which will inside these nodules, they'll produce these heme groups that will actually pull up and bind to the oxygen to make an anaerobic environment inside of the nodules to allow for the breaking of these N2 bonds. So nitrogen is, the reason why nitrogen is, it's funny because nitrogen is most of our, what we breathe, right? It's the majority of the gas in our atmosphere. However, it's because a single nitrogen um, atom by itself has three extra electrons or three less, you know, it wants to bind to itself. So it makes this really tight triple bond. Um, so the reality in general is that 
we have bacteria that evolve mechanisms to pretty much separate these bonds and to incorporate them into a number of their metabolisms as well. Um, so the reality, too, is if this nitrogen is form of, you know, biological matter through compost, right? We have a variety of nitrogen fixers that are free living that go through the process of uh, nitrifying um, and even going through this as well. And if we basically compost properly, we do it aerobically uh, rather than anaerobically, the nitrogen is put into biomass uh, rather than being off gas as well. It's really interesting now we're talking about, you know, everyone's talking about carbon, reducing our carbon footprint. No one's talking about uh, the nitrous oxide, <laughs> yes. which is 20 times worse uh, at retaining heat uh, than, than, uh, than the carbon, than, like than carbon dioxide. Right. And the reality too, it's largely a product of the fact that we have decomposing organic matter. If you've ever been like, near a compost pile or a decomposing um, plant body or some really putrefying organic matter, you're smelling this ammonia and, and nitrous oxide and all, and the, and all these different uh, nitrogenous gases, which are indicative of bacteria that are going through this uh, anaerobic fermentation metabolism. Um, you know, but if we can, we can balance out our nitrogen with the carbon and basically compost properly, um, we can basically invite microbes into this metametabolism where this can be put into amino acids. This can be built into complex chains of organic matter, which is a form of nitrogen that our plant has evolved to take up. So there's all different types. And so in the nitrification process, right, there's all these different cycles. Um, you know, uh, there's a really good course that, um, John Kemp has abundance, uh, his Regen Academy on kind of redox. If you really want to go down the rabbit hole, uh, but yeah, there's these processes as well. Everyone talks about pH, but no one talks about EH, you know, and that these different conditions that will kind of block this metabolism. Uh, for certain microbes, if the conditions are set up a certain way, where the oxidation is too high or the environment is too reduced uh, as well. But we're pretty much relying upon um, the microbes um, in the air, the microbes on the surfaces of our plants, the microbes in the soil, the microbes on the roots, um, along with the organic matter, inorganic that are on there. Um, that are performing these reactions in general. And we do have enzymes, obviously, inside of ourselves, inside of plants as well. But when we're talking about plant health, um, if we don't have biological diversity, microbial biological diversity, um, we're trying to understand the microbiomes of our of organisms, macroorganisms, are a secondary organ system. So a little concept about this, the perspective, right? You think about you as an individual, right, and all your cells and all the proteins that make up all your tissues and everything and the enzymes that allow to do maintenance on this tissue and basically perform your functioning metabolism, right? Cool. Um, as a human being, right, you're 35 trillion with a capital T cells, um, so we currently think that with microbes um, that are living in on and around us, um, they're either one-to-one, -one, so 35 trillion U cells as a human, or th two 35 trillion microbes. So from one-to-one -one all the way to from one to 10. So where you have 35 trillion U as an individual to 350 trillion uh, microbes. That is kind of absurd. So think about this, right? I think all those cells that are you, they're all these different organ systems. What happens if your microbial diversity is really diminished, right? You are functioning without a secondary organ system um, where all these different metametabolisms are functioning and working as well. And imagine that same principle on your plants or any other macroscopic organism. 
So that's kind of something that should give us pause and think about, you know, if we're missing this microbial diversity, um, think about all the enzymatic functions and reactions that would be functioning with our enzymatic reactions that if they're lacking in general. So that's pretty interesting thing. And I think on a we only kind of get this on a macroscopic scale, right? You know, as humans, we're omnivorous. You know, we get our nutrients, we get our protein, we get our amino acids, we get our elements, we get our energy from either eating plants or we eat the animals that eat plants. But what are the conditions that those plants or animals are grown and cultivated in, right? Are they, you know, we're turning out, it turns out we're understanding that, you know, largely the source of B12, right? It's fun and interesting because we have people that are B12 deficient, even though they eat meat. Turns out a large part of vitamin B12 synthesis is largely responsible based upon microbes. That gives some pause, right? If we have people that are eating meat, which is a large source of B12, which you can't get from a lot of viable plants readily, there are some plants you can get them from, but they're not as readily available. They're kind of more a niche kind of, um, um, you know, specialty item. Um, if you're eating a diet of meat, what is what are the conditions, and you're B12 deficient, what are the conditions that those animals are being grown in? That should give us some pause, that without this microbial diversity, we're only kind of working with not even our hand tied behind our back, but one, one arm and one leg. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the nutrient density of food, uh, lack to, uh, you know, based on the lack of microbial diversity in the environments that they're either being raised or grown in, uh, definitely has an impact on our overall health. Um, both our microbe biome in our in our gut and and just ourselves in general um, touching handling uh, all those different aspects of uh, of it um, I completely agree there uh, the diversity is 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 super important um, keeping the diversity of the biology and increasing the diversity of the biology that's why uh, monocropping is a bad thing uh, because it reduces the diversity of the biology and the soils um, when you only have one crop when you have multiple types of crops and you use cover crops and other types of crops interspersed with those other things that are being grown then you increase diversity uh, you increase the interactions and the uh, everything from you know the amount of biology to the types of uh, reactions that are going on within those groupings so um, it's it's a very very important aspect I think you guys <clears throat> highlight something that's like super important that you know research is finding or Craig kind of like hit on it was that you know if we don't have certain nutrients. I mean, we learned this in the 20s when we stripped the brand from, um, you know, from wheat and people started to have skin issues. And then we made Wonder Bread because we realized that people needed, you know, some sort of vitamin that we weren't giving them. I can't remember exactly what it was. Yeah, it's Excuse fortified. Me. If you look in a lot of your products, a lot of this. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and we then had add, we had to add them back in. Exactly, and yeah. and we still do it to this day across the board on across a, a lot of things, and you know here we are, you know finding kind of a similar kind of trend is yeah, we, like we all need these vitamins, but then at the same time, you know here we are taking all of these like bacteria off of our skin and out of our stomach, and people are having 
you know, skin issues, stomach issues, and mental issues, because now we're learning that there's a large correlation between our brain and our skin and our gut. And if that's not kind of like weird that, you know, not having certain bacteria makes your brain go crazy. It's, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's neat, but You're it shows you that you need that stuff. Functioning without a whole organ system, right? You know, um, you know, it's like, I wouldn't say equivalent to like, you know, well, like, you know, the idea is if all of a sudden you were missing like 20% of your bone marrow, you would notice in your ability to produce like, like white blood cells, right? You know, you know, it's, it's, if you're missing a, a significant portion of like one of your organs, that's, you know, and we not so much imagining like, you know, cutting it out, but like shrinking it down by volume that's a fraction of what your body is going to be able to compensate and maintain that or that metabolism that the organ evolved to do. So the notion is in general is like, we can understand these things as a meta metabolism, right? You know, if without these key organisms, and we're understanding a lot now, microbial diversity, um, some of these organisms literally will sit as like a middleman whose job is to basically take one product from another enzyme further up the chain, right? Um, that product will be their substrate. They'll break it down and that their, and their product will become a substrate for another microbe, right? You know, it's kind of the man in the middle, right? And so it's kind of goes back to the old analogy, like a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. If you remove the, that, if you remove if you move that role or that function or that diversity for that weakest link, what's going to happen, right? You'll have things function, right? We understand in biological systems it's not as cut and dry. It's not like a, we tend to make analogies of comparing organisms to machines, right? It's an analogy, right? You know, like you know, there is some flexibility. And we even understand as well is that a lot of the regulatory networks in our uh, gene expression and molecular pathways are actually promiscuous. They basically can kind of swap in and out because if you had a thing that was very tightly uh, regulated, it would collapse upon itself. But at a certain point, if we co-evolve these organisms that have these other kind of secondary environmental inputs, you know, there's going to be some problems if we continue to reduce that diversity over time. So, yeah, and it, it is something too where I think so kind of going on the wheat thing in general, um, you know, a lot of the wheat that's grown in the United States, we kind of bred it specifically to be shorter and also to have larger heads. Um, what we bred for this phenotype, right, to be desirable, we're not entirely sure that we might have, you know, changed up some interactions that might have, you know, potentially responded to some of these, um, you know, some of these t certain types of gluten proteins that might interact with these pro enzymes and proteins in our gut called zonulin. Zonulin is a functional a functional uh, protein in our gut that basically helps to control uh, the tight junctions in our epithelial cells in our gut. If you have some kind of role where we have, we, through selectively breathing one type of wheat, we have an effect upon this protein and, and we get a leaky gut syndrome, that may be a course of it, right? And we have people that will go over to other areas like Europe where they have using kind of more land races or heritage types of strains of grain and they don't have these inflammation issues, right? And this is this is even before talking about um, just the complete, uh, you know, only exclusive use of industrial um, agriculture using fertilizers, using pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and things that reduce the biodiversity. So, 
you know, at a certain point, right, a stool will function, you know, like, you, you know, if you have like a four, like four foot stool, right, you knock one foot off, right, it'll work, right? You can still lean on three, but the more, <laughs> the more legs you knock out, the more you got to try to balance on just one, you know, at a certain point, that stool is going to collapse under, under the weight that you're sitting on it. So it's, it, there's a lot of factors here in general, um, you know, so it's kind of interesting to see that, you know, there might be the specific roles that only certain types of microbes might have grown with certain types of these land rights and these heritages and that we've only recently begun to kind of see the larger kind of systems at play. And wheat's, wheat's a scary one because of the whole pre-harvest glyphosate thing. I don't know if you all know about oh, that. Oh, yeah. That's kind of shady. He was, was a farmer in, uh, I think he was in, in the England or Scotland just yeah, it's it's, yeah. Well, it's crazy because glyphosate it's, was actually patented as a as a nutrient chelator, something that could lock up nutrients <laughs> before it was patented as a um, as a uh, as a pet, as an herbicide that would interrupt the shigamate pathway. And then even further, they say, oh yeah, it's fine, um, you know, for human consumption because you know we don't have a shigamate pathway. But wait, what is a shigamate pathway? A shigamate pathway is a is an amino acid. It's a it's the amino acid synthesis pathway. What happens if you knock out the microbes that might be producing this amino acid synthesis in our gut and our bodies, right? So the idea is, like, if we approach things from a reduced system, not without looking at the larger systemic effects, um, oops. Yeah, and that, uh, that glyphosate carries. I mean, you, you find it all the way through the food system. It's not like it's uh, breaking down and, 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 and being lost. I mean, there's, it's in Cheerios, right? I mean, it's, it's everywhere, and uh, it doesn't go away. So, you know, it, to me, it also is probably having a negative effect on gut biome and other things because its presence is, is going to be naturally uh, anti- some of those good things as well. So, uh, well, yeah, like yeah. And the, the whole function is like, I think, how do we fix it? Right. The idea is fixing is that, you know, try to try to counteract it. Right. The idea is like, try to understand how do we encourage the microbes that are going to be able to benefit with us. Right. Wide variety of foods, right. Foods that are complex in their nutrient profile, foods that are cooked with herbs that have all these sort of phytochemicals, which once they get into our gut will encourage this breakdown and do these different kind of functions. One example, if we're eating a lot of fiber or complex carbohydrates or complex, um, you know, phytochemicals, if you have a healthy gut flora, these will break these down to short chain fatty acids, which actually have a beneficial effect on reducing inflammation in your gut, um, changing the changing the immune response from inflammation to cytotoxicity. Um, so there's, I, you know, the, the thing about it is when we, we kind of, we can't talk about, um, you know, we can't separate immunology, uh, and microbiology anymore because they're two parts of the same coin. Right. And so the reality is that, you know, it's the whole thing. Like, you know, if anyone's taking one of Chris's classes or say natural farming, like you and I are one, right. That's the idea. We're composite organisms, right? You know, as much as we think about, I am Craig, I am a single entity, I'm 35 trillion cells, right? I am an ecosystem, I am an ecology. What is the state of my ecosystem, right? And even, too, when we have people that have, like, certain fungal infections, right, like, um, like Candida or Tinea, Candida albins or Tinea versicolor, right? These are fungal infections that are opportunistic, and we 
largely start to see is that a wide variety of these people have had a really gnarly course of antibiotics where they've decimated the microbial ecology. And we're starting to understand that the reason why that these are opportunistic is because if you nuke a microbial ecology, the organism is going to keel over and die. It's going to try to survive. It's going to shift from being a mutualist or part of this metametabolism. But if it doesn't have its symbiont, it's going to try to survive. We're actually realizing that a lot of the pathogenic fungi, even in soils, right, um, have these bacterial fungal interactions. Um, one example is fusarium. Fusarium is a tenacious plant pest. Um, you know, it's decimated our current banana crop, Cavendish, I think it's tropical type two. Turns out, um, certain types of bacteria, especially Pseudomonas, um, if Pseudomonas is present in a certain abundance, and this is some of Dr. James White research out of, out of Rutgers, Pseudomonas will shift Fusarium not only to being an, not will shift Fusarium from being an opportunist, not only to be a saffro, not only a decomposer, but a mutualist. So we, if once we restore the biological diversity, we're getting these kind of community effects of these systems that we've only begin to scratch the surface of. Um, and, but I think the principle to take away is that, um, you know, this is, these, are bio, these are organisms living in, in tight ecologic communities on micro to macro scale that are billions to millions of years in the making, billions of years in the water, hundreds of millions of years on land. You know, that's the idea. And, you know, as much as I think we have a knack to engineer and to tweak and <coughs> twist the knobs and dials, you know, why not be lazy? Why not, yeah. you know, go with the flow? <laughs> what, what, <laughs> it's been hundreds of millions of years in the making. Yeah. If it what, ain't broke, what, don't fix it, right? <laughs> exactly. Let the natural stuff do its job. Um, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a great, uh, really, really bad movie from uh, the 70s that Meatloaf was in that's called Roadie. And the recurring theme throughout the movie is it'll work if you let it. And um, I think we need more of that, right? That's probably that's a, that's a good portion of our problem. I think a lot of gardeners have that uh, patience problem as well. Uh, we don't want to let it work. Uh, we feel like we've got to intervene, like we have to do more, like we can outthink this, we can do it better. Um, when the reality is, if we would just kind of step back, it'll just work uh, if you let it, you know. And and um, that's really that's it's really an important aspect. So um, we are uh, 45 minutes in. We're actually an hour and 45 minutes in. So we're 45 minutes into uh, the enzyme conversation overall. And I want to be conscious of time because it is getting kind of late here on the East Coast. Uh, so uh, Craig, did you have any final thoughts to wrap up with besides that last point? Yeah, um, I guess in general, so when it comes to enzymes, the thing to take away is that, um, you know, they really enzymes are the engines of life, you know, and, you know, we say this word engine of life because it's a metaphor that we can relate with, right, to our current technological epoch, you know. Um, they are arguably the things that go forward and drive this metabolism, right? You know, it's, it's kind of in the realm of living and they're constantly working and they're part of you and going and functioning in general. And the idea is that you know, there are some enzymes that we can stabilize and utilize and apply, but in reality, the abundance of enzymes and functioning is they're, they're basically recruited and resourced from the microbes that are basically have evolved to produce them to solve problems. 
um, largely bacteria, fungi also, and well, and what's even crazier is that when we have ecological diversity, one thing that's really fascinating is that between bacteria and fungi, we'll actually have things called horizontal gene transfer, where if there's a certain environmental pressure or stressor, we'll even get genes that will functionally jump between different organisms. You know this happens all the time, bacteria, it's a survival strategy, it's like uh, antibiotic resistance is one that we can clearly document. But even too, in soils and certain environments, such as environmental stress or impress, um, you know, you can have this metametabolism come together, where literally if the environment, the ecology is shocked or under threat, you'll kind of have this biological emergence of a functional kind of all hands on deck to make things survive, right? And this is kind of the amazing thing about it. We call this directed evolution. Um, you know, and this is something that, you know, current science and molecular biology and microbiology are using to solve a lot of engineering problems without even doing any modification, just by setting the environment uh, and setting the experiment and putting biology in a certain direction. And the, and, the, and the solution will optimize itself based upon the fact these organisms have very rapid reproductive cycles as well. So the idea is when we talk about enzymes in plants, how do we get our plants to be have their full genetic potential? It's through the fact that they have a secondary organ system. They have a in the soil, which are through these microbes, which the microbes are functioning and trading with the photosynthate that the plants excel at doing. And then the plants are getting all the nutrition. And then even further, we understand now even within plants, right? There are endophytic organisms. There are plants, bacteria and fungi within plants that might be doing some of the secondary chemistry inside the plants um, that produce things. One example is Taxol. Um, if anyone has experienced, it's a it's very potent, um, you know, can't chemotherapy drug. <laughs> Taxis is referring to yew trees. And so for years, okay, they had all this aspect that they're going to harvest all this yew bark and they were going to use it to make Taxol, these kind of, uh, these chemotherapy drugs. Turns out they're like, oh wait, it's a fungus inside the yew plant that makes the Taxol. And then, okay, cool. So how do we cultivate the fungus? They did more research. Oh wait, it's actually the symbiosis between the plant and the fungus. And they did more research and it turns out there's probably a secondary component where it's a, it's a, it's a fungus, a plant, and another microbe. So the idea is this is something when we start realizing that, you know, all throughout our world, a lot of these macroorganisms are composite organisms. And we, we reduce the biological diversity, which we don't notice on a microbial scale. Um, we are kind of limiting the full genetic potential that has been millions, hundreds of millions of years in the making. Awesome, awesome stuff. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the re the rhizophagic cycle is another one that I think of. You know, I mean, that's really how uh, you know plants absorb nutrients in many ways with that uh, hair, which is really kind of a fungal body. Uh, the the root hair is kind of like a fungal body that 
comes into the plant cellular wall and uh, gets recycled and spit back out and comes back and forms again. And uh, there's these uh, changes in its you know status and structure as it goes through that process, which is really amazing. Um, so yeah, no, just awesome, awesome stuff. And you know, I, I it's uh, you know the if you don't have um, the bacteria and the microbes and the fungus to excrete the enzymes, then you're not going to have the enzymes in the environment uh, to do their job. Um, they're not going to be there to do that thing that's essential uh, for life in general. Um, so we do need to make sure that we are uh, cautious of uh, reducing in, uh, diversity and, and focused on increasing diversity wherever we can so that we have all of those wonderful enzymes to help uh, with these processes and, and to uh, to be those catalysts uh, that we need them to be. So I really, really appreciate you uh, hanging out and uh, even uh, hanging out later than you probably originally planned, Craig. So I, I greatly appreciate that and uh, absolutely thank my uh, really good friend uh, Peter uh, for uh, uh, actually going through. He's, he, hopefully he's eating dinner. Maybe he's on dessert now. Uh, he's actually uh, having his anniversary dinner tonight um, and was nice enough to get the broadcast going and the recording going and the live simulcast on YouTube going uh, for this process before he went to dinner. Uh, so I, I greatly appreciate that as well. And uh, I'm going to open up the floor uh, and let folks come on up if they have any questions or comments or anything that they want to add. Um, and uh, we'll keep this open for a little while longer. Um, yeah, but, before uh, I go, it, yep. just in general on enzymes, um, there's a really great resource. Uh, it's called the Protein Data Bank. And basically what they are is it's, it's a big repository for all the sequence structures. We talked about amino acids. Um, and we have a whole database online where we understand, um, you know, the sequence of these amino acids, proteins, right? Because right now, as we're getting with technology and, um, you know, and where biotechnology is co uh, combining over with bioinformatics, where we can literally use computers to deal with all these large swaths of data and even predict how these proteins fold, right? Knowing the sequence of proteins is pretty straightforward. We actually knew how to sequence proteins where we actually knew how to sequence DNA or RNA. Um, but they're a great resource where I'll try to find the video uh, where they give an introduction video on enzymes and kind of explain it. And what's really essential with uh, this kind of stuff when you're getting into um, learning about molecular biology is the visualization, right? Not at, I think a lot of people are visual learners, but not everyone is able to like read a concept and understand um, what it looks like in a, in a functional system to our current model. So uh, I'll drop that link in the chat um, and kind of the details of quote unquote structural biology, which they kind of explain how these different things. Okay, cool. Actually, I'm, what I'm going to do is so I'm going to go ahead and take a screenshot uh, that'll be PTR. I'm going to drop the link in the group chat on the YouTube live stream. So anyone in Clubhouse, you can kind of just Google uh, my PTR update in just a second. Let's take a look here. And then in the chat. I will update that one as well. So yeah, cool.
be. Ollie Muffins. We can't hear you, brother. Um, but I appreciate you being here and hanging with us. Matthew, thank you again for uh, coming up again and joining us this week. Apartio, uh, what uh, did you have some uh, questions or comments for us tonight? Thanks for joining us. Yes, sir. Thanks, Jason, for letting me come up to the... Uh come up here to the stage. Um, I had a question about Humate. I don't know if you guys touched on it earlier. I'm a little late to the room, but we have two major factories um, here in northern New Mexico of Humate, and 18-wheeler loads of, of it are, are coming out daily, um, headed to big farms all over the world is what they're claiming. And I was interested if anybody had any, any insight into its possible uses for uh, cannabis. Thank you. Well, I think in general, humate and humic acid um, are used for uh, plant soil health. Um, humic acid itself is one of the primary uh, ingredients that comes, uh, nat that's naturally created um, by the breakdown of uh, materials. Um, so uh, when you, uh, you can actually make your own humic acid by running water through compost. Um, the humic material is what makes up, part of what makes up soil as well. Um, humic material though, you have to be very, uh, humic acid uh, itself and the harvesting of humates and humic acid, you have to be careful. Um, there are uh, good sources and bad sources of uh, humic acid and humates. Um, I know that um, there are, uh, it's something you have to be careful of because uh, many times they are harvested from uh, fracking and oil production. Um, and when that happens, those are uh, contaminated products that really shouldn't be used uh, for plants. Um, humic acid is um, also good for helping clean your water uh, if you are using um, uh, tap water or water that's coming from some commercial, uh, you know, government or commercial cleaned facility. So uh, the two primary chemicals used in water cleaning systems here in the United States are chlorine and chloramine. Uh, they use other things as well, but those are two of the primary ones, and neither one of them is very good for your plants. <clears throat> chlorine will dissipate uh, naturally, if exposed to oxygen, if the water is exposed to oxygen uh, over a 24 hour period of time. So, if you take your water and put it into a jug or a bucket and leave it overnight, you know, or leave it for 24 hours with the lid open, that chlorine will dissipate and, and uh, go away. Uh, chlor chloramine, on the other hand, will not 
that stays in the water. Uh, but you can use humic acid to actually uh, bind that <clears throat> chloramine and make it uh, inert so that it is not impactive to uh, your soil and to your plants. Craig, did you want to add on to that? Not sure if Craig's yeah, still Yeah, I'm still here. Um, yeah, I'll PTR my my image real quick because it's. I think it's pretty important to talk about like what exactly is you know humus or humate. You want to PTR real quick. So this is from um, a paper in came out in 1993. Um, it was It was basically conceptual representation of a typical humic acid molecular structure. Wow. And pretty much. <laughs> wow. It's, it's it's yeah. So the the reality is like you know. It's kind of funny. Our best understanding of it is a continuum of biological matter. Uh, it's something that I watch happen every two to three weeks when I sit at my compost piles, and my compost piles get a darker color, like a nice dark chocolate brown, like 70% cocoa color. And basically, it's the reality is when you have billions of microorganisms, um, you know, bacteria and fungi and even protozoa and nematodes eating and pooping and eating and pooping all this organic matter, you're disassembling um, complex organic matter and making kind of available. So it's basically understanding it's, it's continuum of biological matter. I think the best way I can describe it is it's basically a fractal. Um, there are a lot of these motifs. It's heterogeneous. Um, some of the similar structures to be in plant matter are the lignans, basically what makes wood wood, what makes wood firm and rigid. Uh, and also, too, um, this is something that really only fungi are able to basically break down and disassemble. Um, so if you have really good compost, you have really good humic ma uh, matter uh, in your compost, so you don't have a lot of fungi, you, there's not going to be a lot that can liberate and break this down and be made plant available. Um, even, too, you know, we understand that in our soils that actually you have a number of spores of mycorrhizal fungi that are already there in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the soil bank, much like the seed bank that's there. Um, you know, and, and even too, basically by getting, by getting a wide variety of fungi in your soil, even decomposer fungi on mulch, um, you know, in mixing in mushroom blocks, getting a wide variety, you'll start getting a wide variety of these, uh, these saffro, saffro, uh, saprophytic or saffro fungi breaking down and freeing these up and even stimulating and along with plant growth, the germination of these spores that are actually in the actual soil. Um, so in reality too, is this is a huge part of plant response as well. Um, Cause really it's only fungi that can kind of break these down. Now, humic acid or humates, um, these are mined out of the earth. So these, yeah, it's understood that these are fossilized uh, pockets of organic matter of uh, humus basically been fossilized and stratified. So the ore that these are actually extracted from is it's an ore called lenadite. Um, lena, it's actually funny. I was talking with uh, Leighton Morrison about this. Um, it's funny. Lenadite is actually silica, um, and it's kind of been funny because I've been kind of going down like a biodynamic rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> listen to a lot of like Rudolf Steiner's lectures, and it, and it, and it, I I have a background in like the chemistry and biochemistry and stuff, and like I'm listening to this guy talk about you know, like, you know, the structure of polypeptide bonds and amino acids and these forces and things. And like, oh, he's talking about microbes, talking about this and that. He's talking about, you know, like the biogeochemistry in a way that like, 
you know, the science of the time couldn't talk about, but there was like methods of talking about it through like a process and metaphor. Uh, Cause this guy was a polymath. He had his fingers in all these different pies and things like that. So it's kind of a trip, you know, it's something where like, you know, I'm fortunate to have that background and I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from it, but you're seeing a lot of fermentation techniques that are there and available. But yeah, um, that's the one thing like, uh, like Jason said, um, so the humates that can be extracted uh, from coal as well. There are certain types and substances of it. Um, and even too, I think one thing, if you actually do get uh, humic uh, acids or humates from alenodite, um, even the process of composting it and putting it through a biological process and allowing the microbiology to basically break it down and, and solubilize it in a form that's biologically active or, you know, enlivened. It's kind of funny. And like Rudolf Steiner talks about in these agriculture lectures, you want to stay in the realm of the living. Um, you know, this could even involve putting an inorganic substances into your compost pile, adding in, uh, adding in high calcium, uh, lime or adding in rock dust, uh, mineral nutrients, because the reality is there are going to be microbes that are in the environment that will, if stimulated enough by other microbiology, um, will go through their biogeochemical processes that we're only beginning to understand. And actually what's really exciting, some of the work that I'm hoping to do for like actually academic career stuff, maybe down the line, maybe in business related to one of the same, we actually kind of have the tools now to kind of uh, link a lot of the organic compounds in the soil, uh, these metabolites, um, to the actual function that actually exists um, in the actual genomes of these organisms. So we can do things where we can potentially, um, you know, extract DNA from the soil, um, sequence uh, the DNA of the organism there, even know potentially uh, sequence and extract the RNA, um, know who's doing what, who's home, and then even potentially correlate that with, um, you know, what type of uh, enzymes, the proteomics, and then even further doing some crazy shit, which is like, this is some like Star Trek kind of stuff, uh, the metabolomics. Literally, we could, we can identify what chemical compounds are in each one of these residues from the organic matter, and then map potential protein pathways from who's there. So this is some like stuff down the pipe where, you know, I feel like a lot of science needs to be done a lot of the regenerative processes, but we can actually kind of understand the symphony of nature and potentially quantify it for the first time, which I think is the only way that we're going to be getting people in the mainstream in science to kind of actually um, understand how to do it. So yeah, anyway, that that's, I think <laughs> that's, that's, I think I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it, Craig. Um, the other thing I did want to mention real quick is uh, you might want to just check out uh, bioag.com and the stuff that Dr. Faust, uh, F-A-U-S-T, talks about uh, around uh, humic acid. Um, he has a company, Bioag. That's where I get my humic acid from. Uh, he does uh, talk a lot about the differences between uh, the types of humic acid that can be obtained uh, from good sources and bad sources alike, um, and trying to make sure that you're getting a good organic source uh, for that material and making sure that it's not being mined in some uh, industrial process that might also include some chemicals from the processing itself of that, uh, you know, that raw material. So. That's my main recommendation. There. 
Word. And I'm going to do a shameless plug. Um, I started with Leaf, uh, who's been on the kind of the Living Soul discussions for a while. We have a podcast called the Applied Mycology Podcast. As any kind of good quarantine project. Um, but if anyone wants to kind of get into mycology or learn more of the basics about some of the science, we try to provide an approachable approach, kind of the details, but also kind of get into different topics. And we interview a bunch of people that are mushroom foragers or cultivators or even mycologists and even people that get into the molecular ecology through a fungal lens. So feel free to check that out. Shameless plug, but I hope you'll learn something and I think there's a lot of good resources to synthesize and compound and resynthesize knowledge for sure. It should be shameless. No, it should be shameless. Please plug, plug away. Uh, Absolutely. I I, I have to remind myself because I always just like forget. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And uh, Craig is always doing fantastic things all over New York and uh, elsewhere. Uh, So definitely give him a follow and check him out on Instagram. And um, definitely, uh, he's he's definitely had a bunch of uh, posts and, and things out there. So I appreciate your time again and go to sleep, man. Go to sleep. Go get some rest. Right. Thank you, you so much. Thanks for having me. Take care. Yeah, absolutely. Matthew. He also had a really good uh, plug for Rudolf Steiner. I wanted to highlight that one. If anyone yes. hasn't gone down the Steiner rabbit hole, his entire biodynamic journey and then also his like philosophical books are something that will blow the mind i swear if anybody touches them they're like you start going through some of them and he was a brilliant mind brilliant mind absolutely all right so um if we have no other questions i think we can go ahead and get ready to shut down this room uh, so I want to once again uh, remind you, if you are not already a member, please join the Future Cannabis Project by clicking on that little green house at the very top. Uh, if you like what you heard tonight, please make sure you give a follow to myself, uh, to Peter, and to all the other speakers who participated. And uh, please make sure to check back next Thursday night uh, for the next episode of Hot Herbs grow and tell and check out all the awesome content uh, for the future cannabis project on YouTube. Uh, there will also be eventually a replay posted of this, uh, uh, this session. So uh, if you missed anything or you want to rewind it uh, for some of the great information that Craig was providing tonight, uh, please, please check out the future cannabis project on YouTube and absolutely give me a follow on Instagram. Hota Herb, J-O-T-A-H-E-R-B. Um, and uh, you can also give uh, Ollie Muffins and the Cannabis Talk folks a follow as well. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us and listening in uh, and learning about enzymes tonight. So uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and close down the room. Are you good with that, Peter? I uh, yeah. Have a good night, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks a lot, fellas. Thank you for listening to a Future Cannabis Project podcast. For more information about the Future Cannabis Project, visit futurecannabisproject.org or follow us on YouTube at youtube.com slash futurecannabisproject. You can also check